So we're reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. That's page 1825 in the Red Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Brian. <clears throat> It'd be great to keep that passage open in your Bibles or on your phone, and you'll find an outline for the talk on the back of the service sheets. Let me pray for us as we start. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the great privilege we have to be able to open it up freely, to read it in our own language. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who inspired and caused these words to be written uh, centuries ago, now present with us today to help us to understand. We pray that you give us attentive minds, give us soft hearts, give us ready wills to believe and to respond and to put into practice the things that you say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? That, that was the question Sarah asked me. Uh, Sarah and I were at high school together, and it's a couple of years after graduating, we were having a conversation about faith, and Sarah just asked, so you know, what is a Christian? Uh, I think Sarah had grown up thinking that she knew the answer to that question, but was beginning to realize that maybe it was something different. Ask your average Adelaidean what it is that makes someone a Christian, and you'll get a range of different responses, won't you? And probably quite a lot of I don't know, you tell me. Some people think it's a matter of belief. You've got to believe the right things. Some people think it's a matter of behavior. You've got to live the right way. Other people think it's a matter of religious observance. You've got to say your prayers, go to church, make confession. All those things are important in living as a Christian, but they're not the essence it's possible to believe the creeds, to behave decently, to be very disciplined in going to church and saying your prayers, and still not be a Christian. I didn't have a very good answer for Sarah back as university students. I can't remember what I said, in fact, uh, but I do remember afterwards wishing that I'd said, a Christian is someone who has a relationship with God. Or as Paul would say in Philippians 3, a Christian is a person who knows Christ. They know him personally as their friend and their savior and their Lord. 
Jesus Christ is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's kind of obvious. Knowing Christ, trusting Christ, following Christ. The the British evangelist J. John says, if you take Christ out of the word Christian, you're left with the letters I-A-N, Ian. And he may be a very lovely guy, but he can't change your life the way Jesus can. That's a joke. So in this passage from his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul clarifies what it means to be a Christian. And he does it by painting two portraits, both of himself. The first before he became a Christian, when he was trusting self. The second, now that he is a Christian, he's treasuring Christ. The key phrase, I think, in the passage is at the end of verse 3. Paul's describing Christians as those who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh means not trusting in ourselves anymore. Instead, we boast in Christ Jesus. Older translations say we glory in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul says in verse 1, we rejoice in him. He's our joy. He's our treasure. So trusting self or treasuring Christ. Two ways to live. Which one describes you? We're going to look at the two portraits in turn. Firstly, trusting self. This is the first half of the passage, verses 1 to 6. Let's look down and read again, verses 1 to 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. This requires a bit of explanation. When Paul talks about those dogs, he's referring to Jewish false teachers who thought that salvation was a reward for being good. They were saying things like, Jesus is great, super important, but you also need to keep the Jewish law. And in particular, you need to get circumcised. You can't be fully accepted by God unless you're living the right way. And Paul is very animated in his opposition to these false teachers. He calls them dogs, and this is not a term of endearment. He's not talking about cuddly lap dogs, but you know, street dogs, strays you might find scavenging in the rubbish dump. Interestingly, it's the same word that the Jews used to describe Gentiles, non-Jews, outsiders. Paul is saying, no, it's you who are now the outsiders because you're pursuing and you're teaching a different way of salvation and you're drawing people away from trusting in Christ as their only saviour. He calls them mutilators of the flesh because they're so caught up with the physical circumcision but are missing the the symbolism, what it points to, which is circumcision of the hearts, your heart being cleansed and renewed. And so in verse 3, he makes the contrast. He says, it's we who are the true circumcision, the true people of God, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, I said before, confidence in the flesh basically means trusting self. See, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the the tissue that covers our skeleton. 
He's talking about everything we are in ourselves, our upbringing, our family, our connections, our education, our talents, our achievements, everything we might put on our resume. Someone has said the best way to understand the flesh here is to remove the last letter and read it backwards. S-E-L-F, self. We're doing a lot of wordplay in today's sermon, aren't we? That's not normal. But, but I find that helpful. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about self, everything we are in ourselves, everything we might take pride in, everything we might trust in for a good standing before people and ultimately before God's. This way of understanding the flesh is supported by what Paul goes on to say. Verse 4. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh, verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is saying, if we're judging people on their resume, well, I'm at the top of the list. I have every reason for confidence. And then he gives a brief summary of his resume. Six things that he could be justly proud of. Firstly, his religion circumcised on the eighth day. He'd received the physical sign of membership in the people of God. His nationality, secondly, of the people of Israel. Thirdly, his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, which might not mean anything to you, but of the 12 tribes of Israel, only two remained loyal to the Davidic king, Judah and Benjamin. His culture is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He hadn't kind of given in to the pervading Greco-Roman culture, he was a Hebrew through and through. His morality, fifthly, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, Paul adhered to the strictest religious observance and obedience. And sixthly, his zeal. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul had been fanatical in his opposition and persecution of the Christian church, which he saw as blasphemous. You could maybe summarize those six things as Paul's pedigree and his performance. Pedigree and performance. And then I think at the end, he kind of summarizes everything. says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's saying, look, if a person's right standing before God is based on themselves, their religion, their upbringing, their culture, their spiritual, moral performance, if that's what makes a person righteous, acceptable to God, then I was faultless. I had every reason for confidence. Now, it's important to say that there's nothing wrong in the things Paul lists in and of themselves. It's not wrong to be from the tribe of Benjamin. Of course not. But they are hopelessly inadequate to make you acceptable to God. Not wrong in and of themselves, but hopelessly inadequate to make you acceptable to God. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 7, as he begins to paint the portrait of himself now as a Christian. So we've looked at the portrait of Paul before Christian, when he actually had a different name, Saul. We've looked at Saul, the Pharisee, trusting self. Now we're going to look at Paul, the Christian treasuring Christ. In verse 7, it's like Paul draws up a a profit and loss table. Uh, Look down at what he says, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
He says, all these things that I've listed, that I was trusting in, I used to think of them as great gains. They were in the profit column. But now I consider them loss. Why? He says, for the sake of Christ. He goes on, verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Paul's eyes have been opened to the surpassing worth of Christ. And compared to that treasure, he considers everything else a loss. Look at what he goes on to say, end of verse 8. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now garbage is actually a polite translation. It's a word that could be translated excrement. Paul is saying, now that he's come to see the beauty and glory of Christ, everything else in his life is like horse poo. It's dung. Paul talks here about knowing Christ. And I think there are three main aspects to that knowledge. And they're not immediately obvious. If you've been a Christian for a while, you might be surprised by the way Paul describes his relationship with Christ. Three aspects. Firstly, he talks about trusting Christ as his righteousness. This is the most obvious contrast to the portrait of Paul, Saul, before he was a Christian. He used to trust in himself for his acceptance by God. Now he trusts in Christ. Look at what he says, verse 9. He wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, that is, trusting in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Here again, you can see Paul contrasting two approaches, two ways to obtain righteousness. The first is to try and establish our own. For Paul, that meant trusting in his Jewish pedigree and performance. But what it looks like will vary depending on time, place, and culture. For some, it'll mean strict religious observance. I say my prayers, I go to church, I make confession, I fast, I undertake a pilgrimage. For others, it will mean trying to live up to whatever standard of morality they or their society has adopted. So I stand up for freedom and equal rights. I treat people with tolerance and respect. I protect children. I care for the environment. Maybe I give blood. In all these things, it's as if we're trying to weave together a garment of righteousness for ourselves. Something to cover our failures. Something to make us fit to enter into the presence of God. But it won't work. It won't work. No matter how we try, how hard we try, we can never achieve a sufficient righteousness to make us acceptable to God. If we think we can, we either have an inadequate view of God or an exaggerated view of ourselves, or probably both. In the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, he labors this point. He says, there is no one righteous. No, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. As Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They may be very good things to do, but they cannot make us acceptable to God. Far from being righteous before God, we all stand guilty before him. 
because of our sin. So if establishing our own righteousness doesn't work, what's the second approach? Well, it is to receive Christ's righteousness as a gift. There is one who is righteous. One person who lived a perfect life of love and obedience, the Lord Jesus. He never sinned, had no guilt, yet he went willingly to the cross, taking on himself our sin, our guilt, paying the penalty that we deserve. And if we put our trust in him, the most wonderful exchange takes place. It's as if he strips from us our filthy rags and puts upon us his own robe of righteousness so that we can enter into the presence of God in Christ and can be accepted by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. If you're someone who's not yet put your trust in Christ, let me urge you to do that today, to receive him, to receive his righteousness as a gift so that you can have the assurance today that the verdict of the final day has already been declared, that there's no condemnation, that you are fit to enter God's presence, righteous in his sight. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ, you know how easy it is to slip again into trying to establish a righteousness of our own, trying to add to what Christ has done. I think that explains why Paul describes all these things on his resume as loss. See, he doesn't just say that they're nothing. He says they're a loss, negative. Now, I haven't found any commentaries to support me in this view, but I wonder if he's saying they're negative because there's such a danger that we put our confidence in them. Jesus said how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I wonder if he could also say how hard it is for a morally respectable person to enter the kingdom of God. Because it's so difficult for them to humble themselves, to admit their need, to, to receive salvation as a free gift. There's an old hymn that Tim Keller frequently quoted. It says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Lay your deadly doing down. Your pedigree, your performance, your personality, all your accomplishments, all the things you take pride, lay them down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. So firstly, Paul trusted Christ as his righteousness. Secondly, Paul possessed Christ as his treasure. Verse 8 again. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul speaks of knowing Christ, not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him in a real personal way. 
He talks about gaining Christ, having him. It's like a marriage, isn't it? To have and to hold. I wonder, can you and I say with integrity, I know him. I know Jesus. And can we go further and say with Paul that knowing Christ is the supreme treasure of our lives, that everything else is like rubbish, like sewage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. See, Jesus isn't only our righteousness. He's he's not only the one who saves us. He's the one we're saved for. Having Christ's robe of righteousness is a wonderful thing, but we mustn't stop there. We've been given Christ's righteousness so that we can enter into a living, loving relationship with him. Our joy is not ultimately in being made righteous. Our joy is in being made righteous so that we can know Jesus. So that we can have Jesus. So that we can possess Jesus as our all-surpassing treasure. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, better by far. I've um, quoted this guy before, uh, but it's so fitting for the passage today. Let me quote again from Frederick Faber, an English hymn writer and theologian. He wrote, Wherever we turn in the church of God, there is Jesus. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything to us. There's nothing good, nothing holy, nothing beautiful, nothing joyous, which he is not to his servants. No one need be poor, because if he chooses, he can have Jesus for his own property and possession. No one need be downcast, for Jesus is the joy of heaven, and it's his joy to enter into sorrowful hearts. We can exaggerate about many things, but we can never exaggerate the compassionate abundance of the love of Jesus to us. All our lives long, we might talk of Jesus, and yet we'll never come to an end of the sweet things that might be said of him. Eternity will not be long enough to learn all he is or to praise him for all he's done, but then it matters not, for we shall be always with him, and we desire nothing more. Paul trusted Christ as his righteousness, possessed Christ as his treasure. Thirdly, he pursued Christ as his way of life. We're going to say more on this next week, but this really follows on from the previous point. If if Christ is your treasure, if your heart is captivated by his beauty, then you will want to be like him, won't you? You want to know him more. Know him in your lived experience and follow him as the pattern of your life. So look again at verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Can you see the pattern here? Paul mentions Christ's resurrection, then his sufferings, then his death. And then resurrection again. Resurrection, death, death, resurrection. We've seen already in Philippians how that that central passage that we're memorizing, central passage about Jesus, his self-giving, sacrificial service is an example 
for Paul, for Timothy and Epaphroditus, for the Philippians, for all of us. We're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. His life is to become the pattern for our own. Paul saw his whole life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is what Paul Miller calls the J-curve. J for Jesus, but also J for the shape of his life. Jesus, who being in very nature God, humbled himself, took the form of a human, then became a servant, obedient to death, death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, who made himself nothing, died a slave's death, is exalted to the highest place, the one before whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Dying and rising, humility and exaltation. That's the shape of Jesus' life, and that's the shape of the Christian's life. Paul wants to enter ever more deeply into that way of life, to know fellowship with Jesus in his death and resurrection. As I said, we'll pick up that theme more next week, but it means at least taking on Jesus' mindsets, following him in a life of self-giving, sacrificial service. That's, that's the power of the resurrection at work. power of the resurrection isn't found in health and wealth and prosperity, but in a life of sacrificial service, following the great Savior. So let me conclude. Two ways to live. Saul the Pharisee, trusting self. Paul the Christian, treasuring Christ. Which one describes you? I'm going to give you a minute to reflect on what we've looked at, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So just a minute to reflect and respond to God in your own hearts. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gracious Father, we pray, detach our hearts from trusting in self. May we lay our deadly doing down at Jesus' feet. Please, we pray, open our eyes more fully to the surpassing worth of Christ and set our hearts on him as our all-sufficient Savior and our all-satisfying treasure. We pray for his name's sake. Amen.